Hi, you're listening to Our Grind Podcast, coming to you from a pirate ship on Manhattan's Upper East Side. I'm your host, Kim Power. I'm Marshall Jones. I'm Genghis Tun. <laughs> and tonight we're talking to James Adelman. And to help us on our journey, we're sipping a little straight bourbon whiskey from Traverse City Whiskey Company. James brings us an enlightening revelation of his process, life, the universe, and everything. Have a listen to Adelman as he unpacks his journey into meditation and gives us a view into his nocturnal preambulations. James is a graduate of the New York Academy of Art in 2014 and also attended the Cranbrook Academy of Art in 2010. His paintings and drawings have been shown at the Lodge Gallery on the Lower East Side and Flowers Gallery in the Chelsea District both located in Manhattan, as well as the Abend Gallery in Denver, Colorado. Adelman has participated in a number of artist residencies, including the Woodstock Birdcliff Guild residency funded by the Pollock Krasner Foundation, and shares his views on the benefits of getting away from it all. You can travel with Adelman virtually. Just tune in, turn us on, and get into the inner workings of this artist's mind. So, James, welcome. Yeah, thank you. welcome, James. Oh, thank you for having me. Is it a- Adelman or Adelman? <laughs> yeah, Adelman. Okay, Adelman, Adelman is right. Yeah, unless I'm trying to fool people into thinking I'm Jewish. It's Adelman. Adelman. I always uh-huh. said Adelman. Yeah, I don't even bother correcting people because that's sort of the intuitive Losing uh, pronunciation. Battle. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm going to say it wrong because now you've happening. said it both ways. <laughs> totally confused. <laughs> Adelman, like advertisement. Okay. Adam up. Or addition. Yeah. <laughs> addition, man. <laughs> so thank you for adding me to this group. Oh, nice. <laughs> We're thrilled to have you as our very first guest. I think the only yeah. speech tick I have is I cuss too much, so I'll try to uh, oh, edit, so edit oh, yeah, that. Don't start. Self-edit that as much as I can. Yeah. <laughs> A few I, years I on trucks know. at loading docks, and it never really uh, shook off the habit. <laughs> That's right. Wait, did, did you load trucks? Seriously? Yeah. Well, I, I, early, the first job I had in New York City was uh, working for Crozier Fine Art, which is our transportation company. And I was driving uh, trucks between Newark and all over Manhattan and the boroughs and, and loading, unloading between the two warehouses. They have warehouses in Chelsea and Newark and a couple other locations, but those are the two I okay. dealt with. Yeah. With, was that before, after undergrad? or uh, After undergrad, before graduate. Okay. All yeah. right. Let's talk. Yeah, it was, it was what I was doing actually right up until the academy. It was it was about the two probably the two years leading up to the academy. Okay, was All that right. like full time? Yeah, oh yeah, full time overtime. <laughs> and were you were you producing art at that point? No, I wasn't. I had uh, actually prior to that, I had withdrawn from Cranbrook Academy of Art uh, for a bunch of reasons, but. Uh, I had left that school and I was questioning whether or not I wanted to continue pursuing art, and so it was uh, kind of a deliberate hiatus from it Are to you... see how my psychology fared right. when I didn't have a studio practice for the first time in you know ten years or so, and uh, and it was pretty clear to me that I wanted that back in my life, you know, after the end of about a year, and it took me another year to then get into school and sort of transition okay. out of that. You know, it had been moving back from Michigan to New Jersey and then getting a job in Manhattan. And, uh, oh, Michigan. Okay. What were you doing in Michigan? Well, that was, that's where Cram, Cranbrook's in Bloomfield Hills, which is a suburb of uh, Detroit. It was like where a lot of the heads of the car manufacturing plants kind of set up this, this really beautiful town there. Okay. Oh. Cranbrook's a really weird school because it only has a high school and a master's program. There's no undergraduate program oh. there. 
Huh. Yeah, not the middleman. Strange for a couple other reasons, or, or just awesome for a couple other reasons, because right. most students and faculty live on campus during the master's degree program. Uh, a lot of the teachers are given houses on campus. The campus is like a sprawling hillside campus. It's modeled after an English boarding school, so the buildings are spectacular, and there's a lake and uh, all kinds of cool stuff. And their educational system is based on you know studying what you want with who you want, so there are not classes or grades there and students are encouraged to intermingle with any department they see fit you're sort of under under the guidance of the major department i was in the painting department run by beverly fishman who actually has a great show up right now uh in new york but um okay she uh she was my main counselor there and it's a it's a do you know the gallery she's in um, I'll I'll find it for you in just a second, but uh, okay. off the top of my we head, I'm, I'm blanking it on it. I just I just realized that the opening was was two weeks ago after the opening, so I'm, I'm you know bad, <laughs> was behind bad. the ball so, on it. <laughs> so, what were you feeling when you were on the docks for two years and decided you needed art back in your life? Like, what would have that? It was it a void you were feeling? Uh, was it? commercial aspects like what was the the drawback in perpetual discontent um (laughs) there was okay just a strong sense of angst and and anxiety and uh in sort of incomplete like and and i don't know if it's healthy or not but i've come to very much sort of affiliate myself you know the the self as someone who participates in creative practice and so without Mm -hmm. it i sort of yeah i did i felt a void and i felt uh I just felt aggravated all the time, and and I don't think that I've had another suitable outlet for approaching feelings, a safe space to approach feeling and and to explore ideas and things like that. And and uh, I busied myself with work to kind of distract from that, you know. So I was working. I took a lot of overtime shifts too, and, and okay. that job was okay. very exhausting. I mean, a lot of heavy lifting, and my downtime between lifting was I, I drove the truck a lot of the days. And That's uh, stressful. And yeah, driving in Manhattan, a thirty foot box truck full of you know potentially millions of dollars barred wow. regularly is, uh, yeah. was that yeah That's so it was, it was you know it was like heavy lift into a fancy building don't break anything get it on the wall and then you know back to driving a truck in manhattan traffic and, oh, uh, yeah and so by the time i came home at nine o'clock at night i was spent and it didn't i couldn't really use my brain that whole year um, yeah right but but i was seeing lots of spectacular art and it was a great backstage pass to all kinds of venues and yeah, collectors homes and I, I got to handle art by many of my famous artists and for me that's a treat because i get to see like the back of i'm a huge gerhard richter fan and uh you know i got to handle one of his works and i got to see what his stretchers look like oh, on the back so cool. you know oh, stuff amazing. like that and and who was you'd be surprised the lack of craftsmanship in some cases and you'd be really blown away by it in others and uh, uh interesting and also getting to interact with gallery personnel and see the you know the back rooms of the auction houses you know the front room looks spectacular but what's going on behind that wall is right. a really fascinating experience and uh and I think it, it sort of just brought me another stage further into the art world, and, and I didn't feel appropriate there not participating in the actual creation of it. I sort of was taking that year to see if there were avenues in the art world I would explore where I wasn't actually the artist. The isolation of being an artist had sort of started to drive me mad, and at Cranbrook, I thought that being in a community would alleviate that, but um, I was still feeling very, very isolated. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a, my practice at least is, is individual. And, you know, I'm in a room by myself for, for many hours right. each day. And so I was trying to find, I was starting to think that maybe that's just not an environment that's healthy for me. Cause I really was, you know, starting to fall into depression and stuff because of it. And, uh, I found after not doing art that it just, it's necessary, you know? And so now I'm, right. you know, been still always trying to find the balance, but, uh, trying to participate socially to alleviate that and, and just be more, 
like necessary in a therapeutic sense or necessary in like a um like a keeping your sanity sense, you know, or yeah, absolutely. So Exa- it's like exactly. A drive, that is how I mean. A beast you have to feed, essentially. It's it's psychology, and I think that I, I you know, it's 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 conceivable that I could replace it with other activities, you know, and I, I because painting is like a very just meditative thing for me from an early age, and and right before I started drawing in a serious way, I was like practicing martial arts, and I had oh, been on a that's really interesting. rifle team, actually, weirdly. and uh, Rifle team? Yeah, and that, that was one of the things that my weird private high school offered. Uh, so I, so I was that. a varsity rifle team member from my freshman year of high school onward, and that's, a, that's an activity that's very much a breathing exercise and, right. and an act of concentration and stillness. And when I think about that stuff and the meditative aspects of martial arts, it's just visual art when i when i met my first teacher who, who really said this is a serious thing people go on to study and have careers in that was the turning point where that then became the activity i enjoyed more than the other two by far and you know mm-hmm. i'm suddenly skipping my kung fu class to to draw to finish the drawing i was working on that afternoon do you, know? you feel and, like uh, you kind of lose yourself when you're like lose self-awareness when you're facing your painting or the the drawing i would say that, that that's my on? aim Okay. But I don't always achieve it, okay. or, or even even at this at this stage, I would say it's it's somewhat rarely achieve it. But yeah, to lose myself, to be in a state, I think in uh, in like Buddhist terms, I think it's called being in flow, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's you know you're 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 conscious, but you're not you're not just relying on your consciousness. You know, you're making lots of decisions that are under that. And a great the only analogy I, I have for it, even though I was never. I was awful at basketball in most sports, but, uh, but I think that basketball players, you know, when you have a player, like, it's like, oh my gosh, he's on fire tonight, you know? And then after the game, they're talking to him. And so common in those interviews is like, so what were you thinking out there? You know, like what was going through your mind? It was like, I don't know. I was just in the zone, you know, I just, you know, just everything was just falling into place. And I just, I just went with it and, you know, I just, all the shots kept going. And that's, that's what in flow is to me. You know, I heard a thing. It it could have been like radio lab or one of these things where, you know those brain scans where you see like brain activity while someone do, does something and they were showing a golfer like a professional golfer hit the golf ball and his brain activity was so minimal there was nothing happening and it's like when you've done something so much and it gets so rote that the only way to do it's like you know, when they say they make it look easy, it is easy at that point. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's really easy for oh, that completely. guy to hit a golf ball. You completely. Know? It is, and it's exactly what I'm getting at. And, and you know, having gone to a driving range two or three times in my life, I know that the times I was really thinking about how, I, you know, I want to move my body this way, those were the worst yeah. shots. You know, those are the ones I shanked or barely rolled off the tee. And, yeah. Uh, There's a tennis book about that. I can't remember the title. I'm going to look it up and put it on the podcast. But there's a book that's specifically about tennis that I referred to, well, I read it years ago, and I referred to when I was drawing the figure a lot because it is about that, like being in the moment, being present, going through the movement, and not thinking and analyzing what am I doing in this movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But actually being It's got to become it. automatic and easy. Yeah. Well, and I think... Uh, I think that there are so many functions of the mind that are not consciousness, you know, that we've come to rely on our intellect and sort of the verbal component of our thinking and decision-making process and disregard it to a great extent, uh, intuition 
and and just a lot of other communication our body is doing with us that isn't verbal. And I think that a lot of times, you know, it's sort of like sometimes you know the answer just because you have a gut feeling. And a lot of times I'll have the gut feeling, but then I'll have to sit there and think it through and come up with every reason why I should do it that way. Even though it's like I just... I just knew. It's like, that's how I should do it. But I'll torture myself and, and force myself to logistically think it through, like, why it makes oh, sense to do that way. Because you have a very and analytical mind. Do you do anything to, like, turn that off? Do you listen to music? Or? Meditate. Okay. I, 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 I'm at this point meditating almost every time before I start oh, really? in my oh, studio. Wow. Okay. Um, it's, it's the quickest way for me to change gears from, from functioning through the day. In New York, particularly challenging. The chaos is hard to shed. So, uh... That's that's the fastest way for me to get focused. Otherwise, I can find myself walking back and forth across my studio for two, three hours. If, if, if it's, that's the first thing I sh- should do when I come in, usually, though. Because okay. from there forward, I, I'm just kind of clear about why I'm there in the first place. And, uh, okay. Do you, do you, like, turn your phone off? I do. I, not as much as I, I would like to. I'm trying to make that the standard, you know, that, that there are times in the studio that's blocked out for just that activity and, yeah. and to turn off the phone and everything like that. But... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm human, so I don't always. <laughs> yeah, because I found, like, there's problems in my life if my phone is off for eight-hour stretches. <laughs> and I can't, I can't rectify that because then I'll be in the studio and my phone's just constantly, like, lighting up and buzzing. And it's like, well, Rembrandt didn't have to deal it's with this shit. It's such a distraction. It's insane. Well, the strategy I've employed, actually, is to give myself, like, checkpoints, you know? It's like, okay, you, hmm. you know, because people get very aggravated if they are texting Smart. you and you're not responding. You yeah. know, in some instances, you know, people expect immediate response at this point in communication. You right. Know? And, uh, it's all even with so email. It's, you know, people don't get it. If, if three hours have gone by and you haven't responded, they're like, what, what's the problem? He's not in the train. What's, what could he be doing that he's not answering me? Yeah. And right. So to alleviate that frustration, I sort of say, like, okay, in an hour and a half, I'll look at my phone and if there's anything pressing I'll, I'll address it I'll take 15 minutes and address this and That's you know smart. sort of like blocking it out that way putting the phone on silent so that it you know it's it's in the loop but it's uh it's not right. gonna pop off and I don't have that anxiety of like the text message coming you know because that causes me an anxiety the, 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 the potential for an interruption can really prevent me from getting into this kind of trance mind state that, I, that we're talking about um, that certainly uh, makes sense uh, Did- did you get into the meditation when you took Inca and Absolutely, yeah. I would, I would fully attribute what I'm doing now to her, um, or, or at least her introducing me. I've, I've, you know, since totally adapted it and, and you know... <laughs> what was that class of hers called? It's called... So Inca Essenhai was the first time she had taught it when I was there, I believe. Uh, it was called Painting from Imagination. At and, the New York uh, Academy of Art. Yeah, at the New York Academy of Art. This was the last semester I was at the New York Academy of Art, and... Uh, my thesis show ended up being primarily work derived from that class and that practice pretty much just overtook everything else I was doing during the last month or two of school there. So Um, what did she ask uh, of you to... Well, she just led us through a few exercises. Um, It wasn't overly specific, you know, and she sort of the whole time was like, this is a very subjective thing we're doing, you know? So like how you engage with it and how you connect to it is going to be very different from how I do, you know? She's sort of, but she gave us exercises, you know, she would give us, we would go through sort of guided visualizations where she would talk us through as a group traveling through places. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, other times we were asked to think of a story that was significant to us and to try to meditate on the feeling that that story brought to mind, not to go read the story again, you know, but maybe there's a story from childhood that stood out and, why does that stick with you, you know? Like, let's try to meditate on the feeling that that is, and then what visuals do you associate with it? And as an entry point, initially, 
she asked us to mix two colors. She was like, don't worry about what you're going to paint with the colors. Just try to sit there and, and sit with the feeling and what two colors, a light color and a dark color, represent the mood that you have, you know, the mm-hmm. specific feeling that you're having. And, okay. uh, and that was a, sort of a beginning point. And there, so there was just a range of exercises, you know, over the course of 10 or 12 weeks, it was sort of a different activity every week. And toward the end, it was sort of like, okay, you, you've gotten an overview, so now you can go down whichever tunnel is most intriguing to you. So do you use some of those tools that she gave you then? Or? Yeah, at this point, I don't know that I would... I would say I'm even doing the same thing anymore because it's become so personal and, and just really spun off on my own tangent from that okay. starting point. But it was it introduced, like I'm saying, it introduced uh, a much more intuitive way of thinking and brought in. I, I would say it introduced like the broadest range to my studio of any of the classes I, I took there because I am a highly analytical person and I am heavily logistical and. I had been doing work that was, you know, very, very densely encoded with meaning and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. everything had symbology and everything had a reason for why I was doing it because it was, you know, toward the end of grad school, I had had to defend myself so frequently. I had, you know, myriad text and stuff to, to kind of back up every single visual cue that I was giving people in looking at a painting. Yeah. And the paintings felt, uh, I think, still and felt... Um, I, I'm, I, I can't think of the right word, but they... Uh, Contrived, Stilted. contrived, yeah. um, and they and they felt like they were, they weren't, they they were you know very well done and very smart and had lots of meaning and, and and you could interpret them and come up with a lot of things, but they weren't very impactful and and they weren't very moving and they weren't very, they didn't feel very genuine to me and mm-hmm. and I also didn't feel like I was really enjoying making them. You know, the studio had felt like very much a labor at that time. Mm-hmm. And at the best times, it's absolutely a joy, and and so that was uh, that was something. And I, I couldn't, I kind of knew that, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was I was lacking. And and mm-hmm. in her class, she talked a lot about emotional resonance, and and that the you know the mindset that you're in when you're looking at a canvas communicates to the viewer. You know, so if you're sitting there the whole time drawing something, and and the, and the thought that's going through your head is like, this is going to be so good, this is going to be so good. You know, that that drawing when someone looks at it, they're like wow, this person thinks they're really good, you know, and, and mm. things like that. Um, and so, it, so the, the meditation started to be like interspersed, you know, at the beginning to locate a feeling and to see what visuals I had associated with it. And then anytime I started to get too far away from it, I like, inevitably my mind starts speaking up again and louder and louder and louder. And so I would pause periodically to meditate and kind of try to re connect with that feeling so I stayed in the same emotional mind frame throughout the duration of creating the piece with the belief that if I'm in a certain emotional state the whole time that that you know may reverberate through the canvas back at someone and that gets kind of cosmic when you think about it in subatomic terms and wavelengths and things like that but uh but I think it's totally conceivable that in some subtle way you're affecting the wavelengths of things and that affects what people perceive later and yeah I was actually just um, I'm not sure if this is related to that but I was just reading about how if you observe an electron um, it will change its path the observation of an electron absolutely and that's why it's, it's very difficult to <laughs> that's like Heisenberg yeah like objects under observation behave differently quantum than theory the, yeah. yeah I think and it's that, called the Heisenberg but it's principle been, it's been proven that so that actually the, uh, does Schrod- happen. Was it Schrodinger's cat? Mm-hmm. Schrodinger's cat, yes. Schrodinger's cat, yeah. In and out of the box, alive and yep. 
Well, and it's and it's uh, it's one of you know I I've, I've been employed by Mark Tanzi for the last three years as his studio assistant, which is a great and very personal. Are you still doing that? Yes, I am. Yes, and um, he uh, he talks about these topics, you know, at great length, and is as much more knowledgeable on them than I am. But but he often mentions in painting, you know, the right and the wrong time to assess what you're doing, mm-hmm. and and with that kind of thought in mind, that you know, just by accessing assessing what's happening, you've changed what's happening. Right. And and that's true, you know, as you said, in the <laughs> atomic level, and and also in, I think, just in our the way that we think about things. Yeah, because it's all. Oh, go ahead, Don. I was, I was going to say, uh, have you ever read David Lynch's book, Catching the Big Fish? I haven't, and I'm ashamed to say that because I'm a huge fan of his. Like this um, is right up your alley. I, I haven't, but I know that he's a huge proponent for transcendental meditation, and uh, that's something that I've started to research but have not been involved with yet. I've, there's a group called Dharma Punks that I've been going yeah, to I regularly. I wanted to ask you about that because uh, you mentioned Corda. Is this Josh Corda is the yeah. guy who's been heading it um, okay. in conjunction with, with several other teachers, though. But uh, but he's the, the forefigure of it. And um, it meets about three or four days a week, and it's like a half-hour talk about meditation, but also about neuroscience findings, recent neuroscience, and Buddhist teachings and all of that. He's sort of He's sort of collaging together a lot of different topics, a lot of different approaches to the same idea, though, how the mind functions and how we can better ourselves and thereby the world, you know, getting a grip on how our mind functions. Um, yeah. And, and so I've been going to that uh, since I came back from a residency last summer. So about about 15 months, I've been very diligent going at least once and, and, and usually twice a week. And hmm. um, That was the... What's, I want to say Birdcliff? Yeah, Woodstock. Yeah, the Woodstock Birdcliff? Bird mm-hmm. Yeah, it's becoming my summer home. I love yeah, it when did so. you start? What year did you first start doing that? Um, I guess it was 2014. Would it be 14? Three summers ago, though. I've okay. gone three summers consecutively for one month at a time. Oh, uh, for usually a whole in, month. Usually in July. Wow, that's awesome. That's a wonderful luxury. It's been fantastic. Wow. Oh, you're telling me. It's been one of the best <laughs> things. I introduced to my life, and uh, it's really helped advance my studio practice. Light years, you know, and 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 the it, particularly bringing in meditation to it because it's a it was a hard thing in Brooklyn to get to get clear and still. Um, mm-hmm. And so, there being able to immerse myself in that practice on a daily basis was uh, really helped a lot. When I came back to New York, I, I had been sort of struggling to make work, and that it's amazing the effect that continues on after returning from it it's not just the time that you're there but you know when i come back i feel much more sane and much more clear it, and much it's more grounded. totally out in nature or yeah it's on, it's 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 in woodstock uh township i guess i guess town but uh but it's outside of the center of town it's up on the hill that you know that's sort of up on the on the mountain magic mountain and okay. uh, tucked into the trees in the woods up there we have you know two large buildings that everybody lives in communally it's about okay. 16 creatives not just visual artists there are writers and there's always a composer on board and uh and the dialogue then is fascinating because creative process is you know i think the same throughout all domains and disciplines so to hear people talk about it with a different vocabulary than visual mm-hmm. is incredibly beneficial yeah. to talk with a composer about creative struggle it can really open up just a whole new set of solutions a lot of times um so when you're there you're like working all day and then at night you guys all get together and talk about your <laughs> i'm uh, your angst and your creative experience that's 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 the idea and that's largely what happens for most people i'm okay. i'm who i am so I, I have a great deal of trouble working during the daytime i'm i've been not you know largely nocturnal for as long as i can remember my mom cites it back into my childhood and 
Um, so I, I work at night overnight, and it's great not having anything to disrupt, you know, that, that because normally I have these jobs that are, you know, part-time and freelance, and I have to be up, so I can't, if I stay up all night, two nights in a row, then the third day when I have to be at work at 10 a.m., it's, it's a very disruptive on both sides of my life. Oh, um, right, uh, right, right. So being there without any, you know, they, they are very, every activity there is very optional. They're, it's a really laid back, really warm Someone, someone. I remember we were talking about that residency, and I thought this was the best way to describe it. Someone had asked a person about the many residencies they'd done and what the fla- and what the different flavor of each of them was, and you know they said all the major ones, Skowhegan, and all these other ones, and and then they said, well, so how would you describe Birdcliff? And they said, ah, like a bucket of love. Oh, and my it's, um, <laughs> it is like that. Everybody's very supportive. It's not apprehensive it's not pretentious it's it's very mellow everybody's there for the same reason you know everybody's there trying to be peaceful and happy and create work and it's really supportive that way and i love the it's it's really alleviates the problem of isolation that i experienced around the time that i was in cranbrook that um i my studio is in earshot of this front porch where people sort of organically gather every night and you just sit under this covered front porch with christmas lights and talk and drink wine and it's great and I can walk out there at midnight and people are still there and uh, it's just I I know I always have a social group to engage with when I need it when I get done with the studio I'm like okay I've been alone for nine hours it's I I need to speak with someone and there's people there (laughs) that get it you know and when you're being weird because you've just done that they 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 get it and are tolerant of it so what is your schedule ideal schedule then at Birdcliff are you working from like seven at night to seven in the morning or what are you doing i'm working there was something really revelatory that happened in between the first and second session but i'm working when i feel compelled to and when i feel like i have a genuine um, emotion to express just Um, listening to yourself yeah and i would say the first year that i went my strategy was i i was like okay i really want to utilize this time and so i went planned what I wanted to do very clearly, had those canvases, and really tortured myself sticking to kind of two projects, really seeing them through, despite like all of these intuitive impulses I have, which I'm, I'm learning how to bring to the surface now. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I had intuition to do other things at certain points in time, and it was like, no, you have to be in the studio at these times. You can't, mm. you know, don't, it's a beautiful day, but don't forget about that. You know, you have to finish this, and you're bored of this idea, but you have to finish working on it. And I didn't produce, I, I mean, I produced adequately, you know, but, but not prolifically. And the second year that I went, I was very, very stressed out in New York. I was very, I mean, I was on the nervous, verge of a nervous breakdown, I felt. And um, so I went that time with a lot of materials, but with no particular plan and telling myself that I need to go there and focus on my own well-being because I'm, I'm you know, I'm struggling to produce and every, because my, my head's just stretched in a million different directions. Hmm. So it was a very different attitude toward making things. And under that structure where I said, you know, your well-being is first. Do what feels right. If you need to sit all day in the woods, do that. If you make no paintings during this time, that's fine. Like, recover so that you can make work when you come back. Get your mind back in order. Clarify what you're thinking and trying to achieve in the first place. And I did a lot of meditating in the woods that time. I did a lot of bike rides. I did a lot of just hey who wants to go swim in the brook today instead mm-hmm. of like I, I was it's a Wednesday I'm supposed to be working but who wants to go to town and jump in the creek you know uh-huh. and I followed all of those impulses and didn't really keep track of what I was doing I didn't assess the data from this experiment mm-hmm. um, also keeping in mind what we were talking about and, and 
Mark putting that in my head, right and wrong times to assess, I said, I'm not going to worry about what I've done until after it's over. So right. you were already working with Mark at this point? Yes, yeah, okay. I was. And uh, to my surprise, when it came time for open studios, I had more work than I could fit on the walls. I had, um, ah. I had produced wow. more work in that one month than I did in the 11 months that preceded it. Um, wow. And this That's was, amazing. as I said, revelatory to me. And what, what, what were these drawings or paintings or a little bit of both? They were, draw, they were drawings and paintings, yeah. A, a couple large-scale paintings, I mean, up, up five, six feet, oil paintings, and uh, a lot of smaller four-by-six-inch sketches and a lot of in-between, you know, a lot of 30, wow. like, say, say poster size, 30-by-40-inch works, things around that range. Um, and, I, I mean, I did in, in four weeks, I think I completed 12 or 13 works. Um, wow, that's amazing. Okay. And the most beautiful part about this was I never ever felt like I was working. Um, I I had I sort of looked at it and said, when the hell did I do all of this? When did uh-huh. this happen? Because I could swear I've just been like sitting in the woods and like joking around with people drinking, you know. Like I, I yeah. really I've just been having a blast. Like wh- when did the work happen? You know. But I, I was I was in the studio. You know. It was like at the end I'd, I'd hang out with people in the brook all day and they'd be like. All right, guess I'm going to go paint for a while, you know, and then 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. I was working, and uh, wow, it's and, just you like know, a or, natural part. It came, of yeah, your... it came very. It was a very natural output, very organic. Um, I never forced myself to work the whole time I was there, mm-hmm. um, and that. I mean, and, and then and then being able to sort of then assess that versus the previous year and say, and I wasn't, I was very proud of myself coming out of the first year. I felt like I had done really well, but then I, you know, more than doubled my output the second year, and I was sort ah. of. And and enjoyed myself and came back to New York feeling like a whole new man. Um, oh, so it worked on that level too. Yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely restorative and rejuvenating. I mean, I I worked. I guess I worked so hard and I felt energized at the end of it, not exhausted. Wow. When you, when you uh, that's great. When you come back to New York, do you have a studio practice full time? Yes, or? I do. I mean, I, I'm far from full time. I uh, I work for Mark part time and I fill in to, to you know make my finances add up. I do a lot of freelance art handling projects on the side now. I had been working part-time for Mark and part-time for the Flowers Gallery in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And um, and I stepped down from there, but I now go back and help them out with, say, installs or something once a month. Maybe I help them change over exhibits. Um, so it's a, a few days here and there with a lot of different organizations, and I like that. Um, and it's a, it's a little hard to do the studio practice, though, because I don't always know when to anticipate having time in my studio. Right. But I do have a great workspace um, in the basement of the building I live in. I'm the only person who has access to it. And I spent, oh. uh, a, a lot of, a lot of sweat, you know, renovating it myself the, the first summer out of the New York Academy. Um, okay. so right after grad school, I was, Where, working, it's in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, Where in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn? Um, Bed-Stuy. yeah, off of the Myrtle Broadway J train. Okay. Um, um I yeah. You said that you really designed it for yourself, that it's oh, a yeah. real functional studio is, for you. It is. Mine. I mean, it is. It is so mine. it's like a townhouse sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's like a brownstone style building, but it's right. built in the '80s. I don't know if you're familiar with Fetters buildings, the, the air conditioning units that say Fetters is, is. Yes, they're known as Fetters buildings. It's this sort of cheap, like slap it together construction yeah, yeah. from the from the '70s '80s. Um, so it's like a you know a f- like faux brick facade and stuff like that. It's not it's not as nice as brownstone, but they copied sort of the blueprint of a brownstone. So we have three stories, you know, sort of bedrooms on the second floor, kitchen, living room on the first floor, and then we have the full basement and a backyard that connects to that. Wow, fantastic! Sounds it's, great. It's pretty good, and I mean, there's tons of problems. I have 
more rats than you've ever seen in your life, and even by New York standards. Not not, not in they haven't made their way inside somehow, (laughs) but you cannot walk out of that building without being terrified. And uh, there's also a leak in my bedroom, so every time it rains, I get you know anywhere from one to three gallons of water. And uh, wait, but is this your responsibility, or is there super? What? what, Well, there's a landlord. Landlord, but. Basically, the arrangement has been, and I'm satisfied with this, he does not care what we do or who lives there. I'm the last surviving member of the original lease. Um, You're on the so lease. I, the rest I, have been eaten by rats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Precisely. Very unfortunate for the other two. I, I tried to help, but I, I'm only one man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they were carried away by rats, and I ended up being the, like, you know, basically sole, uh, I sort of have a role of, as, like, property manager. I see, I sublet the other rooms to, to other tenants, and I have two great tenants right now, both artists, and uh, they, uh, the landlord doesn't do anything. He doesn't repair anything. I have not seen him or spoken to him in over two years now. I've been living there for about six years, and the rent has not been raised, and that's basically that's the ideal. trade-off. Yeah. Um, right. He said, you know, there's a basement down there. I'm not charging you rent for that because it's trashed, and I rebuilt it, and it's a totally functional studio now that I don't have to pay additional monthly for. Fantastic. Um, you know, I invested wow. probably $2,000 up front and an entire and a, and a summer, you know, in the evenings after work, fixing it and drywalling, insulating it, and, and cleaning up the floors was the most difficult part. Wow. wow. Did you put in, like, daylight... Lamps and no, stuff. I didn't, but it has two windows that are about at eye level, and they're at ground level. They're not in window wells. They're not submerged. Mm-hmm. They're at ground level. Mm-hmm. And oh. so I can see across the backyard from those two. Okay. And I also have a door to the backyard that I put a screen door on. So I have ventilation and light through those three channels. Oh, great. Um, and so it's been great. And, yeah, so he doesn't fix anything, and, and he doesn't raise the rent. And I am, I guess, comfortable with that. That's and I got a hanging cool. plant for the leak, so it's like I, I joke that it's like I used to have a leak. <laughs> Time to water the flowers. Used to have a leak, and now I have an ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, your routine for working is is off and on, I guess, because based on there's no whatever routine. projects that you're working on. Yeah, there's no routine because I can, you know, sometimes freelance, you know, it'll be two weeks straight of work and then I'll have a week solid off or something right. like that. Um, oftentimes the hours are unpredictable. There are night jobs, there are weekend jobs. So it's, there's, there's no predictability and that's sort of driving me nuts, but also I'm, I'm very averse to regularity and, and repetition and, and monotony. I, I've never been able to really hold you know the the working for that trucking company was the longest i ever held a full-time job which was shy of two years and uh and that was different every single day you know i got in the truck and i got handed a stack of stuff it's like okay you're going here to pick this up you're going here to do this and it was you know very a wide variation of things and i think that's why i lasted so long there um I always have considered myself an episodic worker. Um, I kind of work in bursts, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's sort of like, you know, the build up to the residency, maybe I haven't worked for a while, but I've been mentally kind right. of preparing and then things happen very quickly. And I wish I knew who said this, uh, but there was an artist, it's a famous quote from an artist who said, you know, when I work, I work very quickly, but I may spend any amount of time preparing to work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that describes me pretty well. I, it's sort of like a pinball machine. There can be a lot of wind-up, but then things materialize and manifest very rapidly when I'm in the right mindset and zone. I am interested in the in your nocturnal schedule because your painting seems so influenced by that, just that right. noir vibe. It's so with an up-and-down schedule, 
do you only work exclusively at night when you can find it? If I'm able to work at night, I always do. But and you do work in the day occasionally, if you... Yeah, I okay. do. I never... as It seems never as successfully. But I do, because that's if that's the time available to me, then that's what I'll do. You know, if I have three days of work at 10 a.m., I'll, I'll try to stay on that schedule for the two days in between. Um, okay. But if left to my own devices, I will be at night, you know, starting work at 9 and 10 p.m. till till 5 or 6 a.m., within two or three days, usually. And, and, and it just happens very naturally that way. I went to Birdcliff the residency one time with the intention of staying on the day schedule because the night schedule puts you at odds with other people's social schedules so it so it does lead to isolation you know when you right. finish working at 5 p 5 a.m not a lot of people around to go to happy hour with you you know right. um, <laughs> and uh so yeah and then you sleep through oftentimes two or three meals of the day so you're not really eating with people and well yeah that's right you are <laughs> probably seeing sort of uh just in general, even in the city, kind of a darkness. Like, if you are to catch a happy hour, your happy hour is probably four in the morning when bars are last call. Yeah, last I appreciate call. Just last seeing call. that. <laughs> that just a, another side that uh, you know we rarely see. Well, it's it's not uncommon for me to be walking against the commuters. You know, I'm heading home to I bed as they're that, yeah. walking towards the train to go to work. And that's that's a common experience for me. So it's such an easy jump from that schedule to your work. Is that do you think that's a big influencer or is I mean, is it noir, is it hopper? Like what these images, what do you would you think is the biggest influence in them? Oh, I mean, the humans are so overdetermined. I don't know if I could reduce it to like a biggest influence. It's just myriad things add up to it. But I'm certain that being awake at night for, and this has been going on for, you know, I mean, since I left high school. So, so, I mean, over 15 years, this has been my, my sort of inclination and schedule. And it was my schedule in high school too. I was in a ton of trouble. I almost failed out of school because they were like, if you keep falling asleep, we're not going to be able to graduate you. Right. But, um, anyhow, that, that uh, yeah, it's, it's been a big part of my life, uh, walking moonlight walks and um, exploring, you know, desolate streets lit by storefronts. And uh, think about that one image of the golfer at night, mm-hmm. right. which is such I mean, it, it could very well be an image you've seen, but it's so out of it's so flipped on its head to me, you know, and that's it's like a negative photograph or something or the swings. Yeah, the swings, too. Yeah, both of those are probably swings. places and circumstances traditionally associated with daytime activity, but I, I've, you know, by putting them at night, it, it, it makes a very sort of surreal effect. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's recontextualizing something common. Um, yeah, but I mean, golf, golf and a playground, those are both places you would be on a sunny day, and, uh, and to put them in the middle of the night is, is, is adds that element. And, and I like these disjo- bringing together disjointed things, and this also comes, comes to quantum thinking and things existing in dual states at once. So I'm oftentimes trying to bring seemingly opposing ideas into the same image or seemingly incompatible things into the same image because eventually there, there is no two things. There's just one thing, wavelengths. And, uh, right. That was something actually I wanted to ask you about was like you often have this kind of nostalgic almost sweet you know happy situation and then you turn it on its head by putting it in this deep chiaroscuro and it feels like this this very mysterious suspenseful film noir and and we as the viewers feel like we're like 
a voyeur and perhaps even a predator looking in on it. Hmm. Is that something that you are? I, I'm very fond of that interpretation. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, there was a, a saying from a bar. My sister lived in Colorado, and this bar slogan was "A sunny place for shady people," and, <laughs> and I liked that. I liked that duality, and and a lot of the work I did in the academy was of celebratory imagery, like. Bur- birthday presents and cupcakes and things like that, but then putting them in, in, in an atmosphere and setting a mood and an emotional tone that was very much not common for, for a birthday or something, you know, very, very heavy, heavy with mood. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's one of the things I appreciate about David Lynch. He does that very, I, I find in, in watching his films, you know, there's these very dark stories surrounding these very like kind of quirky, funny and, and, right. and upbeat characters, these great, you know, diners that are so nostalgic and, and pretty. And I think, I, I think I owe a bit to him for that. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that you need the full spectrum. It's like a human being with emotions, you know, like how would you know happiness without sadness? You know, there, there, there would be nothing if you didn't have the full entire spectrum and what something is, whether it's happy or sad, is, is entirely our human interpretation. You know, I think, again, I'll go to sporting because I don't play sports. I, uh, I use it as an analogy constantly, you know. But two, two teams playing a game, at the end of the game, you know, a, a huge, enormous crowd of people watched the same exact events. And half of those people walk out thrilled and high-fiving each other, and the other half out, walk out with their heads hung and crying. That yeah. was the same exact event we just viewed. The same exact events transpired and to one person it's wonderful and to another person it's very sad and that's true I think throughout everything in life I mean I think that notion pervades every single aspect of living and so when I'm using things that don't add up or that are somewhat opposite it's because they aren't opposite it's because like temperature is hot and cold but they're both temperature you know like Mm -hmm. hot is opposite of cold but temperatures are the same like temperature's temperature that's a that's just a thing that's a spectrum and so I'm trying to get at that kind of idea. That, um, and I think that it's more effective. It's like if you have music that stayed at a. I use all kinds of analogies because I, I don't know how to explain in painting terms necessarily. Uh, in music, if you didn't have you know sort of a crescendo, like you need to have a low point to have the crescendo and to have that build up and to have that yeah. climax moment. And that climax is grand because of what led up to it, not because of the individual moment itself. So right. I need both things in order to in order for either thing to be a thing. And the more I can make something both joyous and totally depressing at the same time, the more that's going to be felt. Like those emotions, I think you know, right. the more you can heighten and highlight an emotion, you need to. You can't. You got to take the bitter with the sweet, you know. And 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 if it doesn't have both elements, then it's going to fall flat, and it's gonna it's gonna feel monotone right. and and not have an impact. I I believe. And a fortunate byproduct of this is is the that it lends itself to subjective reading. And uh, I, you know, that's that's a big focus of my work as well. Do you are you consciously um, working with a specific period of time? Because um, obviously some of the things feel very dated. I mean, like your your recent um, this is a, the recent piece with the in the drive-in, and mm-hmm. then um, yeah, yeah, know, and I'm really fond of that piece. As the, well, the, the the costumes that you're that the, the people the characters wear in your in your drawings and paintings. I, I'd say it's sort of the same thinking. I'm deliberately pulling from non-matching periods of time. Um, okay. So, so, and and the idea is to kind of make it exist a little bit. I mean, it sounds a little stupid, but a little bit outside of time. You know, it's very hard to place when these might have occurred, and eventually, it's like 
this couldn't have occurred just based on what's actually you know the the material content of this piece like the, mm -hmm. the, those things wouldn't have been coexisting you wouldn't be looking at a cell phone at a drive-in I mean now there, there are drive-ins still but you know what I mean mm -hmm. it just would be uncommon <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, do you think there's like a loneliness to your work yeah, I think so, because I think, <laughs> you know, not to boo-hoo, but, but I think there's a loneliness to my personality. So I think that, yeah, I do think that pervades my work, whether I want it to or not. Um, I think there's also a sweetness to my work that appears whether I want it to or not. And that was brought to my attention fairly recently by, by uh, some of my peers, uh, that they said, mm -hmm. you know, you're always doing these things that you, you're trying to make them so sinister, but they still come out sweet. <laughs> um, well, I think that's the dualism in your work, is that there is this... You're drawn in by this nostalgia and the sweetness, and then you're like, wait a minute, what's really going on here? I think that makes it more sinister for that reason. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because you're pulling people in, but at the same time you're saying, this actually isn't safe, like stranger danger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think, like, I, I read uh, David Foster Wallace gave this great definition of lynchian in movies just taking something so uh commonplace and just a slight little twist on it you know and and i think that's your your work definitely really does that not just in imagery but you mentioned that cupcake piece and it's like that is dark color surrounding a cupcake but also there's no figures in there either you know it's just like one thing sort of moodily lit and I don't know it's it may be just in sometimes like the absence of of people or small people on a page there's like vast space for interpretation and kind of a I don't know sometimes we get lost when when the scope is so big and we feel small within it, you mm -hmm. know? And it's, it's interesting you brought that up. I, they, I've been thinking about, you know, what is, what is cinematic? What, is that, what does that mean? And a lot of times it's a scene because, you know, with a camera and over the course of sequential imagery, then you depict a much larger space than a still image might depict. You know, you have a pan in from, like, you know, up above the tree line and then they slowly sweep down to street level. But now you're aware of this whole larger picture. And yeah. I've been sort of, I think, I th it's, ju it's just, you know, it's just, I kind of realized it while working on something recently that I have been leaning that way at, at zooming out to, to make it a little more cinematic like that and to okay. make it so that there's a broader, broader scene. Yeah. And also I think that the cupcake you brought up is a good example of what we were talking about just a minute ago. Uh, I mean, there's there's like a, a symbology to that. You know, there's not a human figure, but it certainly implies a person would be there. You know, you don't have a little right. candle on a cupcake if a person's not standing there generally. And right. um, yeah, and that's a. I mean, that and you asked about isolation. The cupcake to me is very much about isolation and about this good and bad simultaneous thing. Um, it's a you know, it's a cupcake, not a cake. You know, a cake is shared. A cupcake is individual. So it's about the mm. individual experience versus a shared experience. And yeah. it's also a great example of something that is both celebratory and potentially uh, not because, you know, a birthday is great until you have one too many and then you die. And um, so it's like something that like, so it's if people cherish their birthdays when they're children, they couldn't be more ecstatic than that day of the year. And as you're turning 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, like people seem to be inc increasingly down about that it's their birthday yeah. and i think that that's an interesting thing I, and that's not you i'm speaking in broad generalities but uh 
but it's something I've noticed that, you know, when, when my parents have a birthday, they're like, oh, don't, I, I'm not, sure. I don't want to talk about, you know, like, let's not even acknowledge that's happening, you know, and a kid has been waiting for it for three months. It's, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> right. So that's, that's the symbology behind the cupcake, but that's but like. there's even something, I mean, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. When I was like 10, I told, I, I told my parents, I don't want any more birthday parties. I just, they were just like miserable. And there is something when an occasion's supposed to be happy and it's just not, it doesn't live up to what you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. I think even as a kid, there's a little sadness to those because it never was what it was supposed to be, you know? Well, your imagination is capable of creating such grandeur that the material world could never live up yeah. to it. It's, uh, it's about so expectation. True. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Or just even anxiety, you know, like having a room full of disparate people from different walks of life when you're 10 years old and they're all supposed to get along in a room and they're all 10 year olds. It's like overwhelming, you know? And there's, I mean, I connect this to to family, you know, I love and adore my family. I I couldn't ask for better, but uh, they... um, we, we aren't without our tumult, you know? And so there were many occasions when, you know, we've been, you know, bickering all day and there's all this tension and now it's like, okay, but it's, we we're going to the Christmas party together and everybody act together, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like, exactly. it's like, okay, this is going to be a really fun holiday party. <laughs> Even though we were like about to slit each other's throats, like that, you know? <laughs> that's right. That's um, like the real human experience, you know. I think your work is successful in that way. It kind of gets at those those feelings, you know. No, that's, I'll take that as a compliment. Great. Do you, compliment. Do you, you find that that though is is a lot for your audience to handle? Do they do they understand it? Do they appreciate it? Or is it often miscommunicated, misstrewed? I. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I've, I've sort of had a shift and this is one of the things that happened as I shifted to the, you know, internally generated imagery and meditation and, and sort of more emotionally driven subject matter versus these kind of intellectually encoded things like the cupcake has all of this meaning, but who the heck is going to show up at, at a picture of a cupcake and read everything that I just said into it, you know? Right. right. And that was the cupcake kind of preceded this shift. Um, and that's what I was doing with my work was I was intellectually having reasons for everything. And, and I had all these great ideas I wanted to communicate through the image. This is about this and this and this. And largely those ideas were about like existentialism and subjectivity. And in trying to dictate what something's about to someone, you remove the actual experience of subjectivity, which I'm kind of putting forth is the only experience of life. And mm. um, so... I sidetracked so myself. Well, so the shift was uh, recently. I don't. I'm not concerned with whether or not a person understands why I did something specifically. What I'm more concerned with is if they can connect and relate to it. If it lead, and usually that means leaving a lot of space for them to project onto it yeah. their own meaning from their own experience of life. Um, and it's it's sort of like I don't. I have reasons underlying what I'm doing, you know? I have a lot of... Uh, I could speak to the, the drive-in piece later, but the, um, there's a lot of reasons for why that image is what it is. But I don't care whether or not the viewer gets that back from it, you know? Mm-hmm. The goal is not for me to have a, a, a lengthy, you know, concept that's then encoded into visual art in the hope that the viewer's going to stand there and decode it and then be able to explain to me in the, sa- the same paragraph 
that was my you know catalyst for creating it. Yes. Um, I don't I don't wish to communicate that way. What I'm trying to communicate experience and connection, and I don't I don't care if the work is completely misinterpreted. The work is sort of designed to be difficult to interpret right. or elusive. You know. Um, yeah, I I like that I like that pocket a lot. It sort of reminds me of like how how Dylan would work like you know you could listen to any of his songs and you know conspiracy people will will take it to the point where he's prophesying like he's a messiah or some people say it's just ridiculous it's just nonsense stream of conscious and the truth is it's more of a litmus test to the listener's engagement in the thing and they'll bring out things that Dylan never intended that are beautiful, maybe some that he did, who knows mm-hmm. what he intended. And it's just such a rich mind for art to exist in rather than a propaganda poster where you're looking at this, you think this way, you know. Right. A great parallel to draw, just great. And Is that one of the reasons you don't have any titles? I didn't find any titles. Uh, generally, I don't have a title unless I find that it adds something to the work. If, right. it, if it adds another layer or complexity, but usually the title is like more information that deters, you know? It's, it's, it, you could mention any number of elements, I'll just say in the driveway picture, you know, this could be about the lovers, this could be about the screen, this could be blah, right. blah, blah. That one does have a title. It's called Projectors and Screens. Okay, um, I'm sorry. And that's to its meaning, but that's one of, that's very kind of rare. But, I guess um, I was thinking about your charcoal drawings. I, no, and most, they, you're most, right, though. No, no, the, the overwhelming majority of overwhelming majority of my work is untitled for that reason because I don't want to guide the person's mind any more than I have to sort of I want to leave it open as as subjective as possible because ultimately that's what it is anyway and so I'm just leaning into what I find already exists you know if I'm not there to talk about it or explain it the person's going to look at it and they're going to project and, and interpret it and have their own meaning and have their own connections and they don't my iconography my symbols don't mean the same things to them um they right. have their own set of iconography and symbols, you know? So I could put something in a painting, meaning it to mean one thing, but the experience of their, you know, cumulative experience of their entire life led them to feel the complete opposite about that symbol. Right. And so yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't know. And, and also, I don't know. It's another tangent, but... Uh, Say it. But, yeah. Well, like literature, I mean, just, just bringing in a literary element to a painting. You know, I don't have text in my paintings. That's like another animal to tackle, I think. Right. And I think that then the titles also, you know, invite another aspect that I just haven't found a way to approach or manage thus far. You know, if if I feel like there's a point people might... There's sometimes I, I feel like, okay, I want to give a clue where this is at, you know, mm-hmm. because it's... But that's rare. Usually, I just don't want to give any clues, really. So sometimes, um, once in a while, you might have a gate key, but other yeah. times, not. Yeah. Okay. And Where's that painting, the... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking, uh, it reminded me of uh, J.P. Roy's titles. I think he takes them from, like, parts of poems. Mm-hmm. That's usually a pretty decent way to approach it. And, and, and uh, that's been brought up. open interpretation, you know. But while still giving it a vibe or like a theme for the, what you're going for, I, I think it's an excellent solution, you know. But it, each each their own. Um, I, I haven't decided how I want to approach it yet. A lot of things get titled far after the fact, you know, years, two years later. So would you say this is a question just for me because I I well, a lot of what you're saying is resonating with how I'm creating lately, and I have just listen to 
myself, like what, without any intellectualizing and just, does this thing make me, is it funny to me? I'll put it in a painting or is it, is it, um, seductive? I'll put it into a painting. Is it, does, does it make me feel something is my only criteria in the last series? Is that how you're, are you on a similar track? I would say, yeah, I would say that's a similar experience. Um, oh. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not identical, but yeah, definitely similar. And that's that's trying to get away from the, it, trying to incorporate things other than just intellectual thinking. Yeah. Initially, I tried to do away with intellectual thinking. I was like, okay, encoding all of this stuff, nobody gets it anyway. No one ever gives you the response you're seeking, so why have all of that? Now I realize that's inevitable because I do think so, so very much. And uh, yeah. I, so I, I don't think that I can avoid having sort of intellectual decision making. Um, so I'm, inco- so that's incorporated, but these intuitive things, you know, I don't know why I'm compelled to do that image. I don't know why I'm compelled to include that there. Okay. A lot of times in the process of sitting there and I like how slow painting is for that reason, you sort of sit and have to be with it and meditate with it as you manifest it. And a lot of times that, uh, becomes clear to me over that course of time. It's like, you know what, I I understand. A lot of times by the end of a painting, I understand why I wanted to make it. At the start, I have no idea why. And I'm trying Mm. to trust those impulses much, much more than I had in the past, more more than I had in in several years ago. Yeah, because that's really, I mean, as humans, that's really all that we have. You know, we we learn things and, well, it's kind of a giant circle we've been talking about. And it goes back to to Buddhist stuff like you. I'm probably botching this, but... You I know. botch everything, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> when they, they, you know, you start on the journey, a tree's a tree, and then you, in the middle of your journey, you learn what it's all made of. It's particles. It has some symbolic meaning. It, it has a historical context, and all that's just sort of baggage, almost like what we were talking about with the pool player earlier. Like, you learn how to shoot better, and mm-hmm. then you end your, your Buddhist journey, and a tree's just back to being a tree again, and you're you're just reacting to stimulus again, you know? And, and it, it seems like that's really all that we, that's almost like valid to communicate, you know, like why in a way, just your heart on a canvas is so much more powerful than some retread of some Jungian thought or, you know what I'm saying? It's like boring. We all know it, you know, just like react as a human. Well, and there's also, I mean, so much to be said for, you know, if you're going to communicate something so specific, you know, then just write it down or say it, you know, like if that's the goal, like why, why even go through the process of encoding it into visual? I think that it's to get at something more than just a concept that's made visual, you know, um, and, and that's, I mean, I think because it elicits a feeling rather than a thought. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. a painting can elicit feelings, and those are my grown. favorite. Yeah, those are my favorite. I, my I favorite agree. paintings are def- are never ones. Although I can appreciate so many of them, they're rarely ones that explain things to me. Yeah, I you know, totally agree. they're the ones that make me just feel, and I don't even understand why or how it overtaken me that hard. I completely um, agree. It, it's the sudden, and that's also the connection. You know, it's the sudden connection with someone who may be dead 300 years, but I just see a picture, and I'm like oh man, I know exactly how you felt. Like I feel exactly that right now or how I think you might have felt, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, but, but there's like an emotion it brings up in me and I'm projecting it onto that where it's like, oh wow, that guy felt that way too, you know? And then there, 
there are people who I just, I swear they felt exactly like I do. I just know it. Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> and, and then that makes me feel connected to something larger than the self and the individual isolated cupcake. You know, it's, uh, it's like that. Then I'm, then I'm part of, then I'm a slice of cake. Um, ah, that's it's, beautiful. Um, and it's timeless. Yeah. And it is timeless because emotion, like there's actually, I think somewhat of a narrow range of human emotions. You know, we're all working with a pretty limited, I mean, it's infinite, but it's like, eh, we all got basically the same dominant core emotions. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, that is timeless. That is completely timeless. You know, I, I think that, you know, it, I don't know when emotion started. I'm imagining it predates intellect. Um, you know, that there was just an emotion that told you like, oh, don't do that. Cause it makes you feel sad, you know? Right. And, yeah, it's an, it's an, and eventually it's an extension of instinct and intellect, intellect and emotion. I'm sure are just extensions of like the one thing that we do, which is survive. You know, it's it's just okay. life trying to survive in a billion permutations. There was and, there was that radio lab about the guy who somehow had some sort of weird head injury. Basically, it it took his his. Um, emotions out of decision making, like just his preference. I know this anecdote. It's it, excellent. It was like the red and the blue pit, and he would just free, like he couldn't make simple decisions just because he didn't have a preference of red or blue. Oh. And it was wa- so they would do tests where they just put like red and blue pin and say like choose one, and all that he had was intellect, being like oh, the blue would show up on this paper, and it was just like a maddening circle, and he couldn't ever choose. Oh, Where it's no. like all our preferences. There was like, never oh, a man. resolution. I, and I think it was like also studied him in a supermarket aisle, and he, he never could buy a product. Yeah, um, which I can't silly. either. I can't. I go to the like, supermarket. Oh, and we, and, but this is all again common experience. In America, I mean, come this on, is, we have like a hundred different pe- kinds of cereals. So. All made by the same four companies. <laughs> one's ten cents more. The other one has a little more sugar. It's like it's you can't you can't make those. Well, and there there impossible. are moments in life for certain where nothing is the superior, you know, and that's that's the problem I was having with painting was I was like trying to find like what's the right decision all of the time and there is no right decision there is no right yeah. and wrong those are the same thing right. um, it, just depending on your vantage point and I think that these two modalities of thinking I had neglected one and I think most I you know it's probably very presumptuous to say but most society I seem seems to really value the intellectual side much over the, the emotional intuitive side and mm-hmm. you know you're, you're encouraged you, we go to school for years and years to develop our intellect but we I, I was never told to do anything to develop my emotions or get clarity on them. You know, I've, I've engaged voluntarily in meditation and things like that, which I think are very educational mm-hmm. on, on getting in tune with the other side of my mind and getting in tune with my intuition, which knows many more things than the synthesis of my intellectual information could know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's like so much, so much brain activity that's not intellect and to rely on that one yeah. thing. And I think that it's fantastic. One of the one of the most fascinating experiences of my life was that I watched the Super Bowl with Mark Tanzi, my boss, and uh, he was fascinated by it. I don't think he had watched any football the entire year, but we were watching the Super Bowl, and he was absolutely mesmerized. And, and I was trying to figure out, like, what is interesting him? He doesn't know anything about the teams or the players. I don't even think he knows the rules necessarily. Uh, oh, that would be me. So what? what <laughs> so what's going on? So, you know, and we converse. You know, I'm, I'm lucky. I get to have dinner with him. And, and so we were conversing through this, and, and he kept saying, like, wow, it's so remarkable. It's so remarkable. And I finally was like, well, what, what, what specifically? And he was like, well, it's the quarterback more than anything because what a fantastic example 
example of simultaneous use of intellectual decision-making and intuitive decision-making. Yeah. He is both following a plan, which is the play that they called, and reacting to everything that happens and adapting and changing that plan. And he's, you know, he has to make, there's not time, you know, like so many of those decisions. It's like, you don't have time to think through, I need to step left. You know, right. you, 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 you're reacting, but then you're still trying to follow this intellectual plan. And I think that painting is a lot like that. I think life is a lot like that. And I think that it's testament to this experience is that we herald these people. You know, who is more heralded than our musicians that, that, that play guitar and sing and are both like following their own notes and lyrics and improvising and and expressing and not necessarily conscious you know i don't know that many musicians who say that like oh well i was thinking about this and this and this while i was singing that song maybe while they were writing it but while they were singing it they're in that moment so they're following a plan and they're following intuition and they're and they're feeling into it you know and they're and they're really pushing emotion into it and football players you know you need to have heart too you know so it's like intellect and emotion and instinct all at yeah. once and and this is this is common throughout like you know these are our celebrities almost all of our celebrities fall into this category almost all <laughs> so when you're meditating does the imagery that you're going to eventually use come floating up into your head is that where your imagery comes from or is it occasionally I yes mean, you talked about seeing things mm-hmm. out at night but i mean like, i know when just from having done meditation myself, like when you start letting go and all these images start floating to the top, words, thoughts, and all of that, I mean, does some of that come out in your work? Or? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and yeah, that's that's the root of my creation. That's the, what, what's the word? The precipice? No, it's the, uh, there's a word for this. Impetus? Impetus. Genesis, I okay. think is the word. Oh, uh, I like Genesis. The genesis of all of my my visual art is uh is is currently coming from meditation um and and there's many stages in between that idea like a lot of things happen but basically how the meditation has been functioning for me right now is uh it's a way to to disconnect distance myself from my intellect um so i can attune myself to the feelings and emotions that i have at that time and perhaps the compulsions and intuitions and then it's to hone in on what the sort of strongest feeling is and and try to kind of I hate to use the word isolate in this context, that feeling, but uh, isolate that feeling and and then to to meditate and sit with that. It's like, okay, I am feeling most angry today. And uh, and I don't always have a word for the feeling, you know, but you know what it is. And it's and it's the dominant one. So what is the dominant feeling that's that's overtaking me today? And then meditating with that and trying to be with that feeling and seeing what visuals come to mind. And these are not always figurative. For me, they're predominantly figurative because I think that my memory is is so so much visual. in my mind and visual. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my, my most of my imagination is comprised of elements that I've seen in the real world and. Um, I, but they are abstract sometimes. Sometimes there's, but but the, the abstractions are usually a very tangible visual. Also, you know, it's not an abstraction where it's like, oh, it's splattered paint. It's like a very specific splatter. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a very tangible, sometimes volume, voluminous form. That's not the right word, but that, you know, a very volumetric. Thank you, volumetric form. Um, and it and it's very clear in my mind. It's like it's sometimes it's like if I can get really deep into meditation where I don't have thoughts disrupting me, I can see something very very clearly to the extent that I could walk around it, even though it's not a form that I've ever seen in the in my waking world. Oh, wow. um, and and I, I feel like I could paint it from multiple vantage points, even you know. And and but these are abstract shapes and forms. And uh-huh. uh, and sometimes that's how it comes through. And I'm I'm actually very pleased with that when my uh-huh. imagination can do that. But. 
uh, it's, I would say that that's rare. More often, it's, it's scenes and things that, that, and, you know, I'm sure that are built out of association with that emotion, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and usually the process goes that I meditate, get clear on the emotion, meditate on the emotion, try to be with it for as long as I can, and, and what visuals come. And if something compelling comes, I always have my materials. I do everything I can to, to minimize the amount of time between the meditation and the execution um, I'm trying to, like, you know, keep my mind at bay as long as possible, um, give it as little opportunity as possible to reenter. So usually it's me sitting on the floor Indian style with uh, a variety of papers and, and materials in front of me. But most often this is just little four-by-six scraps of paper, both black and white papers and white charcoal and graphite or, or, or black charcoal. Um, and those are usually the initial things. This is right as I come out. I try to just, you know, let my eyes adjust to seeing light and everything again and taking in the world and then trying to, you know, get a rough idea of what the compelling image for that time was. And there isn't always one. Sometimes I come out and I'm like, well, that was a wash. You know, I'll mm-hmm. try again tomorrow. But, uh, okay. but sometimes I come out and it's like, well, what was the most compelling image that you had during all of that? What image, when you recall it now that you're awake, awake quote unquote, mm-hmm. what image do you recall? And, and does it make you feel the emotion that you feel that you felt you know does does that image that you recall now does when you when you pull that image back up in your mind do you do you return to that emotion and uh if 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 so then i usually will pursue that and these come out like chicken scratch at first because at first it's very vital to get them down quickly you know i can't spend 15 hours on a drawing the the first drawing to get this out of my mind it's it's a very rough sketch um you know thumbnails sometimes stick figures just sometimes it's just a few gestural marks um and then, you know, maybe there's two or three ideas that I do in that kind of rough state. And, and then, you know, maybe take a break and come back and then see which one I still connect with and sit down and meditate on that image then. And then do a larger, more complete drawing, perhaps, from the next meditation. You know, so it's like, say I meditate for a half hour, do a rough sketch. Then if I feel something... I'll meditate on that sketch with that in front of me. That'll be the last thing my eyes see before they close. And I'm trying to be in that emotion and with that image and pull that back into my mind with as much clarity and detail as as possible. I mean, I, I'm trying to get as specific as possible on, on what's in my mind. And and from that, I'll pull out, you know, say a, a rougher sketch. And then maybe from that rougher sketch, you know, I'll do intermittent meditations to get the get myself in the emotional mind frame. And then I now have a visual to work from. That becomes my reference. I'm now working observationally, you know. It's, and, and initially, I'm working by observing internally. Now I have something external to look at and I can build upon it and say, okay, now meditate for 10 more minutes. What else do you see? Okay, there's a doorway there. Well, what's the molding look like? You know, like, mm-hmm. can, you, can you flush that out? And, uh, and these go through usually, you know, four or five permutations before, say, something I would consider presenting to a person comes about. Um, a lot of these other things, you know, I have myriad, just, just, just tons and tons of these little sketches and things mm. and, and these semi-finished drawings, these semi recognizable things uh and so it's it's that it's 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 going from the rough sketch and then clearer and clearer and clearer and hopefully i'm getting clearer and clearer on the emotion and on the intent and everything as i go along as well um and sometimes these end up finished drawings and sometimes they end up finished drawings and then paintings and that's kind of what's been happening lately is i find myself returning to certain ones that were particularly strong like the swing set one i seem to keep coming back to right the one with the dresses i'm currently you know i've done the drawing it's up at the Lodge Gallery right now, and that drawing, there's a smaller version of that drawing, which is a pretty complete work 
itself, and there's a painting that's that's much larger, about six feet across, um, started on residency that I'm that I'm right in the middle of right now, and I have a feeling there's going to be a second painting because I also kind of have this vision of it totally different, which I think might be more powerful ultimately. Um, so I think you know that 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 image is going to return in, in five or six different permutations. I think it's um, worth following the rabbit down the rabbit hole to figure out where it's going to go. Well, and if I can still connect to it emotionally, then there's, it's, it's worth pursuing. And if I feel stale on it or I feel bored, I'll walk away right in the middle of it. Um, okay. Huh. It totally makes sense to me, after, after just the process that you've described and the meaning behind your work and everything, that your work would be included in this present show at Lodge Gallery, Latent Content Analysis. Yeah. It just oh man, it couldn't right be in. couldn't yeah. be much like it was more for you. Well, <laughs> and I and I understood why Jason when he called me, he said, "I've got I've got this concept for a show I'm curating, and I really think you're going to fit right in." And, yeah. Uh, and man, he was dead on. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't write a better script for me, really. It's uh. Yeah. It's great, and it's everything that we're talking about. You know, there's the, the material content, the visual of it, and the latent content, which is referring to kind of like you know the the meaning behind the visual. It's it's used most commonly in dream interpretation, and uh, you know, it's like oh, it's a chair, but really it represents my father never being at the dinner table or something. You know, right? Um, right. Not true in my case, by the way, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but just an arbitrary example. Um, and I, I think. And I think my work being so open to interpretation and everything that and being derived now from non uh, external source imagery, you know, this is this is there's a fine line between an imagination and dream and things like that, you know, um, or or how those visuals occur to us, you know, the visual in a dream and the visual when you're like in deep disconnect well, from your intellect and, and, and just visualizing things that that's, you know, and is the dream a dream or is the dream a memory of exactly. Something? Yeah. If it's comprised and if you felt that experience very viscerally, then is it, you know, <laughs> is that a real experience? You know, did you experience that or did you just have a dream? You, you right. were just dreaming or, or did you have an experience that you were falling out of a window? Is that now an experience you can claim to have had? Um, uh. it's, uh, Hmm. It's it's interesting stuff. I think all the way around, and and I'm so I'm just really grateful that 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 ended up coming up that that this was an idea he had and decided to pursue. Um, yeah, that's a great show. I think that so yeah, he it, had it is the idea show. and he presented it to you guys that way, and and it wasn't something like he had you guys together for drinks and you all just started expounding on ideas. Oh no, I would I would give complete curatorial credit to yeah to Jason Vogel. Uh, he he. Yeah, he masterminded. He said it. It's it's something that he had been thinking about for a little while, for for a couple months at least. And uh, and I don't think that he didn't solicit me to you know create work. You know, like oh, this is the idea I want you to make work for that. He said I have this idea, and your work I think fits into this category. He right. was trying to really match artists doing what they He's were really organically doing together. You know, that were related and in unexpected ways. And. Uh, and you know, he said, "I have this idea. I think you know, I think you'll be perfect for this show. Let me come to your studio and see what you have, though." You know, okay. and um, and he came down, and, and I'm, I'm thankful he selected two or three different works uh, that I had going. But that, but that was, you know, it's it's work. The work already fit the idea. It wasn't anything I had to stretch to get to. Um, who are the other? Art- You're in it, right, Marshall? And who are the other artists in that show? Yoon's in it. Yoon, what's it? Yoon's last name? Yoon Sung Jae. Yeah, yeah. Jang. Yeah, Jang. Jang. Yes, Jang. Jang. Yeah. Because I, I always just think of him as Yoon, so. 
So are um, you. And Ryan Scully is, uh, so that's that's the Academy crowd, so to speak, is, is Yoon and myself and Ryan Scully are all alumni of the Academy. And then Marshall, you didn't go to the Academy. No. Right. Um, there's that uh, guy, Allison. Houston's in there. He did the big, like, the, the painting on the wall, the black and white, all the faces yeah the oh, wall mural right. it's it's kind of metal it's it's very metal it's awesome yeah it's That's really right. awesome i love that piece i think it's just spectacular um uh allison uh Berkoy, right yeah who was, was great and did the the tent piece i, I just I, I was hesitant because i wasn't sure if it was Berkoy or Burkoff, but i'm pretty sure allison Berkoy. yeah <laughs> embarrassing oh, yeah, not no, to know these names by heart at this stage mm-hmm. right yeah Okay, I've actually got the list here. James Adelman, Allison Burke. Oh, and Arturo Brenna. Arturo Brenna, Peter Deverington. Deverington, Yoon Sung Jang, Marshall Jones, Feku, Houston Houston Ripley, Ripley, and Ryan Scully. So how do you feel like your work fit in with the the whole dialogue of of the show with with the other works, I mean? I'm still exploring that. The show is still up right now. It's only about halfway through its run, and uh, I've been really enjoying the the dialogue with the other people and understanding sort of why, because on surface level, I might not have connected. You know, it's like, huh, how does my work relate to this person's work? On a surface level, it just kind of seemed like that's a jump. But but as I'm speaking with them, I start to realize more and more the commonalities between it all. And uh, I I don't think I can fully answer because I I need to speak with everybody more to fully comprehend. But I, I think that my work, you know, well, my work is. I think we already covered why my work fits into this curation. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it makes sense why your work like fits that. into the curation. I guess I'm, I'm just curious about how you see yourself amongst the other works in the show. It does seem very diverse, but then, you know, all well, there's are, a there's a dominant atmosphere to that room. I would say, though. yeah, it I mean, does it, feel very. Nothing's dream- really grounded in. I mean, some of it's representational, but nothing's really grounded in reality. It's all subconscious imagery. I would say, when I look at it, I think, boy, this all came out of people's heads rather than what they were seeing. Right. I think that was the... Well, it all lends itself to interpretation, and I think multiple interpretation. There's no one's work in there that I would say has a straightforward, like, oh, this work is about this. I've right. got it. I've figured it out. That's yeah, about yeah. that. It's, mm-hmm. It would be very difficult to do that with any of the pieces in the show. Right. And um, Arturo might be a good example of that. You know, his work is literally two different things. It's it's these sculptures sitting against the wall, but then they're lit so that the cat the shadow, shadow makes a different yeah, form than any of the sculptures. It's, it may be six or seven figures, and then on the wall is a pregnant woman. Um, Which right. would probably and, be the most... It just the sculptures on their own will probably be the most grounded in reality thing in the show, and then all of a sudden there's this twist to it where it's like the real piece is the shadow on the wall, you know. Well, and it, yeah, and it's and that's that's like a dual interpretation. Then you know, it's like, well, well I, I, am I interpreting the sculpture? Am I interpreting the shadow? Are they separate? And how do they then relate to each other? They yeah. are two disparate, different things, and yeah. and they're but they're the same work of art. So I think that's a great example. I mean, it's a very loud example of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that everybody's work has that. I think everybody's work can be read in in many different ways accurately and in, in oftentimes seemingly contradictory ways accurately. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a quality that's often found in dreams uh, more than in reality or, or is more palpable in dreams. I think that it's entirely a part of our reality, but it's more palpable in dreams, things that it's like th- those two things are not the same thing, but they, but I'm, I'm telling you, I was underwater and I was flying. It, it was happening at the same time. Right. You know? um, yeah. And you know, it's like that, 
I have a couple of thoughts. Like, nothing is more boring to me than when someone describes their dream to me. I'm always like, I hate hearing this. Please stop. <laughs> but the I just... visual interpretation seems a little more elevated, and it reminds me of, like, that there's that YouTube video of Herzog talking about why does he make movies? And he was sort of like, I make movies because I had a video camera, you know? There wasn't... I'm not... I'm not... He even said I'm not particularly good at it. And it's true. He's not the greatest cinematographer, director ever. He doesn't make the best shots. But he was like, but I believe that that I'm capturing my dreams. And he's like, and I have to believe that my dreams are shared with everyone. Like, we're all sort of feeling similar things same emotional range and he said if i if we don't record this stuff and dreams he's not necessarily talking about sleeping he's talking about a a feeling Mm -hmm. on life and your ambition and your wants and stuff he's like if we don't record that we're just cows in a field you know just like these and i think that like that's where art and painting and images so powerful where Someone can put their heart on a canvas or their dreams, and I relate to it because there's something poetic about it. It's not, like we were saying earlier, it's not propaganda. But it's not kind of dead and boring about someone like, oh, my God, I had a dream of these giants, and then these dogs were coming, and you you know what I'm saying? It's like a more tangible, sort of beautiful, um, rich experience than just someone telling you the events of their dream that's always a little boring you know well and that's that's the you know the title stems from that you know the the material content is the events of the dream the latent content is what it means but it's usually not that interesting to hear about the latent content because right. you don't understand exactly what the person's talking about you know it's so individual right and, um i i like i mean to, to this point there, i think it's in the fire theft song the fire theft might have had a song but they had a oh yeah they had a line jeremy say, anique right yeah yeah and, that's and no, no one cares what you dreamt about unless you dreamt about them um oh, man, that's so true. <laughs> i find that to be pretty true <laughs> because because i can't understand because when i'm in your dream then i can i know i know about me i can relate to what you're saying about me Right. But other things that you're saying, that it's like, you know, it was a chair, but it wasn't a chair. Like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. I have yeah. no idea right. what you're saying. Yeah, and yeah. so it's, it's very hard for me to engage with it because it's like, it's 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 emotional. It's driven. It's it's like you can explain the materials of it, but that's not getting at the incommunicable, like the, the, the parts that you can't say with because words. Because it's fixed. Right. It's fixed and regurgitated with already a narrative in it, you know, when it's when it's spoken about. Like, language has, it already has a slant on it when someone's saying, like, isn't that crazy? You know, that giant, I think, it, you know. I think because they're seeing it in their heads. And yeah. Yeah, when yeah. When they're telling you about it, well, they're, they're seeing it in their heads. They're seeing it in their heads. obviously not seeing it. Because, they're recreating yeah. their emotional experience of it, too, though, as they're right. telling it. They're like, oh, my God, but it felt like this. And it's like, okay, you can tell me with words, it felt like I was doing this, but I can't. I don't generate that feeling from you saying those words to me, you know? And so it's yeah. exciting to you because you are having, you know, memory of that sensation, and right. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at that moment, at least, you know? So painting and that's where is painting a vehicle is 
great sure. communication at that. It's it's a communication of the nonverbal. It's a, it's an experiential communication. It's a it's a great infinite platform. I've always in, in I've always found it's Mark Tanzi. I keep going back. I mean, obviously he's influenced me over the course of three or four years of interaction. But uh, you know, he says that he believes in the adequacy of the two dimensions because within it is infinity. And um, mm. I identify with that completely. Uh, I think that I think that it allows me to express any any range of things and I feel for myself personally verbal language has not been infinite you know I find myself often frustrated trying to say to someone what I believe and they walk away saying oh I get it I get it but yeah. I didn't really I don't know that they felt what I felt I don't feel affirmed by that but I have seen people respond to paintings by other people's paintings primarily but my paintings on rare glorious occasion where I've seen them and I can just see it in their face that they they feel it too, you know. It's something yeah. I felt, and and I can I, I can see it. They felt it, and you know, and 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 to receive a hug in response to a painting is a fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. And then another nonverbal cue of just you're not alone. Like we're we're, we're here together. We both get this. I, I'm I'm here with you in this state. Um, yeah. So it's an attempt to connect with people essentially for me. It is, which is it's so it's become that because it, it's so odd because it was. It, there was a huge crisis in my life when I tried to quit being an artist and everything and even, and even left a really fabulous grad school uh, mm. because of the isolation that art was causing me. And, and now it's, it's, you know, some years after that, I, I would say that art is, is the catalyst to all my real genuine connection. Um, it, and and the, only, the only way I really know how to understand someone and to feel understood um, yeah, yeah, it was it's 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 a frustrating mistress because it's uh both both at once of course like all things it's both at once it's both incredibly isolating and incredibly connecting. No, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you have any upcoming projects you want to let us know about? Or? I have, uh, yeah, I mean, I got my foot in a lot of puddles right now, but... Uh, okay, anything you want to share with <laughs> Yeah, nothing, nothing, I, I don't know, nothing, nothing grand, but I... I um, latent content analysis I'm doing um, I have a friend who's putting together a, a little Halloween thing so that'll be fun but it's just an apartment artist party and I'm finding that really great recently some more and more of my friends have been like hosting things you know because it's like I don't know galleries can be a little bit I- exclusive or just difficult you know there's a lot of demand to there's a lot of artists and, 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 and fewer galleries so yeah. um, so it creates a need that way, and so and so, in, and it doesn't mean that the artists are any less significant or or powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm finding more and more like individual parties. My friends uh, Corey Dixon and and Chris Law, who head the Alumni Association at the Academy, they've been right. hosting a Sunday brunch, which is kind of like a come one, come all. Um, you know, just we're here every Sunday, and if you want to bring paintings over, great. And they've been having you know just little dinner parties maybe inviting a few like if, if they know some collectors or something like hey come check out what was in my studio and just everybody's welcome to bring their work and slap it on the wall and talk and things like that so I, I, I'm becoming more involved with things like that and then mm-hmm. Kiki Carrillo is the one who's hosting the, the Halloween show oh, Kiki, at, yeah. her, at her apartment she did that last year and, yeah uh, yeah I'm, I'm really excited she just sent me the invitation um, so that's upcoming and then uh, I guess on more more public venues would be uh I'll have work at the Take Home a Nude auction at Sotheby's, um, Benefit in the Academy, and uh, that was work from the Will Cotton drawing party I was just a part of, and I'm, I'm so thankful to be part of that. Inca oh, S and I was there, and uh, that looked cool. 
you know, and obviously, I mean, just a, a ton of artists I never dreamed I would meet, and I'm, I'm there, you know, being, you know, they, they treat me some something some somewhat as a peer, and, and uh, that's a pretty surreal thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. Just so so many great and famous people were there, and it's a really enjoyable event. You know, it's just really fun. So so I did some drawings there that will be in the Take Home a Nude auction, and um, uh, following that, there's I know that the Birdcliff does a five by seven show. Um, all five by seven works, uniform pricing, and anonymous on the wall at least. Uh, oh, I love those. Type I love shows. those too. I think those it's so. Dem- I think it's the best way to go. I think it's absolutely the most like democratic and and friendly. Yeah. I think it's spectacular because people will then select works based on their actual connection to it, not right. because there's speculation that it may be valuable or anything like that. And also, it gives artists a chance who you know, if you don't have a big studio, it might be hard to make a ten foot painting or something. You know. Yeah. And so these I... these group shows where you have these tiny little paintings against these huge paintings that dwarf them right. and that's obnoxious i kind of like the the uniform scale i think reduces everybody to an equal playing field and uniform price is not, it's not prohibitive you know it's a, you're no more prohibited from buying that piece than the one next to it i think these yeah. are great shows that's and, what and i loved about the single fair great single fair four show that just happened absolutely downtown. absolutely I mean, it's, it, obviously because it's on a metro card it's all the they're all the same and They're all the same price. They all had numbers. So unless you recognize the artist's work, which I did quite often, but you wouldn't know who but was But many who. wouldn't, and even if you did, you might doubt yourself. And, you know, it's... Uh, right. And I think, I think so, too. Yeah, these, like, standardized shows, which seems confining and, and totally antithetical to artist freedom and all this other stuff, but it's, like, it's actually a great uh, environment. And I, one of the other elements that I loved about the single fair show was it was a come one, come all. It was an open call, and no one right. will be rejected. So long as you follow these procedures to submit your work, and you're in. You don't have to tremendous. be an artist. You don't have to be known. You don't have to have a resume whatsoever. You don't have right. to have any connection. Right. If you feel like you have something you want to put forth, then you're in. You know, And yeah, you're in just really as equally awesome. as any other artist that's there. No one's that given was, dominance. That was amazing. That's true. But nonetheless, the work was amazing. But I can't, I can't even think of anything that I didn't really enjoy looking at. It's 3,000. I don't even think I looked at them. All. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you were hanging them, right? Yeah, so I was, a, I was point, you've stopped largely looking, responsible. I mean, Chris Law, always my wingman, I, you know, me and him were responsible for hanging that show. Uh, that was a tremendous... And, How many as, you pieces know, were in that show? I'm, oh, I mean, I think it was... It was easily over 3,000 at, at an early count so it could have been I, I don't have the final numbers I never uh, I, I was incredible I myself am a logistics guy but not a administrative <laughs> guy I don't look at spreadsheets or computer screens I have a drill and a ladder that's what I do um, so okay. <laughs> I'm I'm on that end I, like, I, I do all the physical tangible stuff and somebody else can deal with the numbers and everything right. like that um, but it was really well curated too. I mean, just the way you guys laid it out was just beautiful. Yeah, I mean, everybody really came together. We had a really solid team and a great, great crowd of volunteers. So I couldn't possibly name all of, but uh, you know, no less than seven people there. I mean, I, I was there. I think forty-five hours over the course of three days, um, and you know, some other people matched that and and surpassed it. And uh, we had just a rotating cast. We, we, you know, no less than seven to ten people at any given moment in time and volunteering their time to. Um, an organization that's that's trying to sort of uh, expand and grow um, the the alumni academy associate <laughs> the academy alumni association. Um, these are people who volunteered to that, you know, which is a distinct entity from the school. I mean, we had the school right. support a hundred percent throughout the process, and, and it was integral and vital. But uh, but think- it eventually was people volunteering to. The, the alumni association and not to the school itself. And, I think uh, what was wonderful was that they opened it up to everybody, including non-affiliated 
people that weren't me- members of the school. Oh yeah, student, this this was not an academy. I mean, of the school, you know, that's what was so terrific about it. The academy was backing it, but it was not an academy event in the in in, in right. terms of being exclusive or, or limited to to artists that had affiliation there. Absolutely right. not. This was the, the entire concept behind this, as far as I understand it, initially put forth by J.P. Roy and Michael Keegan was. Uh, you know, to be a, a, a sort of democratic show, you know, where where, every, where it's equal playing field for for artists, and uh, right. I think it's I think it's beautiful, and and so to that effect, uh, Birdclip does a five by seven show. They ask every resident that attends, they give them a five by seven thing while they're there, and and say if you if you manage to have the time, you know, no pressure, everything's optional at Birdcliff. Love mm. that, um, <laughs> you know, like we have this great artist coming to talk tomorrow, but if you want to be somewhere else that's totally fine <laughs> um, um, it's great it's so laid back and you have such high caliber people there I mean this is a tangential thing about Birdcliff but I mean great great I've met, I've met just people that are so far advanced in their field and you'd never know it everybody's just there hanging and, and as equals and no one treats each other different it's not one of the super competitive residencies to get to so I find the egos are a lot more suppressed than at other mm-hmm. ones there's not this like competitive drive to outdo one another there's sort of just this like healthy competition you know and and, and, and inspiring thing you know I don't I don't feel bad about myself because I didn't achieve what they did I just see what they did and feel inspired to do more that's how uh, it should be that's I think a great vibe that they really have got going there um so that's in the spring I'll do the five by seven show as I do every year Um, I love that one and um I'm sure I'm forgetting things. I mean, I know I have, I have two or three others in the in the pipe, but I just can't think of what. So, if there was, if you had time and money to do anything you wanted, if is there any kind of like dream project that you would would be doing? If I had time and money to do anything I wanted, I would be on artist residency for the remainder of my days on this earth. Okay. Uh. Yeah. Um, I, that's that's pretty much been my primary focus now. In in light of the the, the great experiences I've had at Birdcliff and many other residencies, uh, the academy sent me to a China residency. I would say that um, not all. I mean, it would be very unfair to say all, but but many or most of the sort of greatest ongoing periods of happiness and contentment in my life have all occurred on residency. Um, it's to me that's an environment that's just absolutely idyllic. It's it's beyond dreams to have time and space to work and a supportive community to work in to have social interaction to to be able to balance my life as as it fits me you know which is different than other people my own natural rhythms a a balance of of exercise interaction studio time and things like this all all you know at my own discretion um i just i just love it to death and i and i'm trying harder and harder to find ways to make it sustainable and i i was you know been dreaming for a long time that i would you know, just give up my apartment and go residency. Every time I'm on a residency, there's somebody who's residency hopping and just yeah. going from one to the next to the next. And that seems That's so fantastic. That's what Lisa Lebowski is doing right now. And I was with her on a recent one at uh, Fieldstones, which was grand. Style. Oh, you did um, the Fieldstones? Yeah. Res- yeah. How yeah. was that residency? Oh, at beautiful. Oh, beyond beautiful. It's in Medusa, New York. And uh, the people couldn't have possibly been kinder. It's one of the most charming, remote, peaceful, beautiful little places I've ever been. And it's just just a spectacular time i mean just great balance of fun and work and and everything and 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 the folks that are heading that up couldn't be more accommodating there's no Mm -hmm. way um so that was a great experience and i i just you know i i'm finding it very daunting to put that together i don't have the financial situation to to just take off like that and uh Mm -hmm. and it's hard to coordinate the timing of all these things uh to you know line up and be accepted to many different programs that sequence accurately and um 
so all of those challenges have, have sort of got me now. I'm backing down to, to this point right now. It's my main goal just to increase the percentage of my time that I'm on residency. You know, if I could, I, I lose my mind in New York. I'm very, I find the city very, very challenging creatively. And uh, I think if I could, you know, I go on Birdcliff once a year, which is the only reason I've managed to stay sane. Uh, if I could increase that, say, to four months a year, I would go on a residency. So I was here, work my tail off for two months, and then be on residency for a month. And during the two months, I know that there's this sort of reprieve around the bend. Right. Mm. That's the model of my life that I'm trying to put together right now. Mm. Um, and Mark is a generous employer, and he, he allows me very much to set my own schedule, and he's very, very, very empathetic to, to the drive to create. And uh, so it, when I say, you know, hey, Mark, I, I've got this opportunity, the first time I was so nervous to bring it up to him, like, is it okay if I take a month off? And he was, you know, like, absolutely, you you are not allowed to work for the next month. You need to go do that. Um, that's great. And oh, that's so great. he's very flexible. Um, he, you know, he's an individual working on his own. He did, No one else does his work for him. You know, I do a lot of peripheral tasks and things like that, but he paints all of his paintings 100% himself. So... Um, and and his ideas take a long time to materialize and manifest, and, and so do the paintings. But um, well, he does everything analog, right? Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, it's Xerox machine, uh, the the whole nine. I mean, old school Xerox machines with with toner and stuff in the cartridges. Uh, wow. Yeah, he's he's it's 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 amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But he he's flexible, but he he doesn't have a need for me as as uh, you know. He always he's so generous in that. If I if I was ever in a financial plight, he would you know create hours for me instantly. But uh, oh. he. Uh, he doesn't need me full time or, or enough. Like he doesn't have a legitimate need for me as much as I would need to support myself in life. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. the the amount of hours that he legitimately needs, he'll come up with tasks. There's endless stuff to do. There's always stuff to do for him. I mean, he has a million projects in his mind, so there's always stuff to do, but, um, immediate needs don't, don't really require anything more than part time. And that's not enough to afford all this time off. So I'm finding I'm the missing link is what's the second job that I can mm. take a month off from at a time. Mm. Um, and we'll see. I don't know yet. I've been, I've been looking, but I don't know yet. It might be something seasonal. I just don't know. Well, I'm sure end, with all I your did. skills, you can find something. Yeah, and I, I've got my eyes peeled. I know what I want from my life now. I know the structure that I want for the next step. Um, and that's it, residency, as much as possible. Mm. And if I had all the, again, if I had all the money and, I, and, and residency being the first answer, the second one would be I would want to buy artwork by so many of my talented friends who haven't had the oh, opportunity yeah. to be seen and, and need the support and validation of yes. uh, yeah. and, and acknowledgement and things like that. I know, I know some of the most brilliant people I know have never been in an exhibition, and uh, that's heartbreaking. And so if I had the resources, I would absolutely turn and support them. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, too. I yeah, too, especially with the single fair show. I thought, oh, yeah. oh my gosh. I could drop a few thousand here if I had it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I thought a lot about start trading with people. I've had a few people offer trades lately, and it's like... I've been taking every one like, of yeah, them. yeah, why not? Yeah, totally. Every one of them I can take. even if And, and sometimes it's like an IOU, and I, I won't take the, their piece until I've come up with one, but in some cases it's like, hey, I don't have something small, so let's... Uh, Caleb Booth is somebody who I wanted to trade with. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so we just arranged that, that I'm going to, you know... I, I, 
he has a small work that I really love and I'll, I'll mm. trade him for that when I create a small work and it's That's something great. I regret not doing more of during graduate school you know I know I know yeah, uh, I agree with like you on Elliot that. Purse and Krista Smith have a great art collection almost everybody in our hey, year I made it a seems. great and, trade with Elliot hey there you go um, <laughs> and so going to their apartment is such a treat and, and seeing all these things that it really got me going that like wow why not like I mean I've met I know I know so many brilliant artists and, yeah. and I have the opportunity to right. have their work, you know, for the rest of my life. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, what, what am I hesitant on? So I, that I can have something small that I'll never even show to people because I'm self-conscious about it or, or it's not finished enough to be in a, in a gallery show. Um, and so I end up, like, with a stockpile of all these, like, small things in my, in my basement studio. And, gosh, I, I, I traded with Kira Rafferty after a residency. Oh, uh, I love her work, yeah. yeah. Um, after the Cuddy Hunk residency, we traded pieces that we had both done there and... I don't even remember what I traded her, but I love her painting every time I walk by it in my house, right. you know? Uh-huh. It's uh it's so worth it. So that's uh That's great. If I can't buy them, I'll 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 exchange for them every opportunity I get. I have a painting of Melanie Votes that I absolutely oh, adore. Yeah. She's great. For that reason, we made a trade as well. So. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. I totally get that. Those are the pieces that you love the most that you cherish the most because they come they come from a true admiration of the artist's work, but also knowing the, individual. the person as well. I know, and I try to be objective, it's also, but it's impossible. After you know the person, I either love or hate their work more. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, thank you thank so, you so very much, much for your time. Right, thank you, guys. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm, I'm, yeah. very, I'm very impressed with the setup you guys have going on here. I, oh, I, I didn't know what I was walking into, but this well, is a pretty legit little first. venue. Hey, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I understand your work a lot more. It was a really enlightening conversation. Well, Thank you. That is very rewarding to hear. <laughs> Thanks and for being so generous with talking to us about your process and, and your thoughts behind it. It's absolutely my pleasure. You know, something that happens in isolation, so it's very uh, joyous to share. Great. Cool. See you soon. All right, see you. <laughs> All right. We had a great time talking to James Adelman. You can find more of James Adelman's artwork on his Instagram account, at AdelmanArt and on his website, adamandart.com. You can find us on our website, artgrindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Art Grind Podcast. Keep creating while we feed your mind.